Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us as we blast off for another busy show filled with social media campaign kickoffs, nail-biting Washington face-offs, and mega-tech earning tee-offs. First up, the Twitter space embrace between Elon and Ron. Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, set to throw his hat in the presidential ring during a mind meld with Musk on the Musk-owned platform late Wednesday. Plus, the Biden versus McCarthy debt ceiling race. Perhaps we're finally seeing some no-deal nervousness across stock stock markets as negotiators struggle to reach an agreement. Little progress reported Tuesday and no word of any high-level meeting so far today. And here is the picture right now. U.S. futures are lower. That follows a 1% plus drop for the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 on Tuesday. A late-day slide on word that talks may have hit an impasse. Losses, as you can see there, in Europe and Asia, too, and pretty sizable. Some Republicans are now questioning the Treasury's so-called ex-state for when the money runs out, suggesting there may be more time to negotiate than the Treasury suggesting. I think it would only be a matter of weeks, not months, if that's the case. Uh, feels a little like semantics to me. Now, it's not just debt ceilings, though, and campaign revealings. The current top gun of the tech world is set to report results after Wednesday's closing bell. Chipmaker NVIDIA, whose shares are up 110% year-to-date, has been a key beneficiary of the artificial intelligence and supercomputing boom. Its chips also help power ChatGPT2. NVIDIA's CEO, though, recently warned of the, quote, enormous damage to the sector from the ongoing tensions between Beijing and Washington. His concerns voiced just days, in fact, before the Chinese government moved to ban purchases from U.S. chipmaker Micron. That's just one more worry to throw on Washington's overflowing plate. Task number one, of course, is the debt ceiling impasse morass. Janet Yellen's ex-date for when the U.S. runs out of cash now just eight days away, though some Republicans are suggesting that there may be a little bit more wiggle room than the Treasury has let on. Listen to this. If we don't pass the bill, the Senate doesn't pass the bill, there's not some catastrophic date of June 1. You're already hearing rumblings that it might be July 1. Uh, there's not going to be some catastrophic, oh, we've hit the limit, look what's happened. I mean, markets will get jittery. Markets go up and down based on the expectation of whether or not markets are going to go up and go down. So there's, there's not some big catastrophe to fear. Channeling uh, Roosevelt, I think, in reverse is the one thing to fear, the lack of fear itself, even at this point. Arlette Sines is live at the White House. Arlette, it does feel like semantics, and I'll say it again to debate the, the number of days. I think the one benefit of being the Treasury Secretary is you do actually have access to the data, unlike any of these other people. Um, what hopes for more negotiations today? Well, Julia, as you noted, some Republicans have cast doubt on that June 1st date. But I think what's important is what we are hearing from the House Speaker and also his negotiators. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday insisted that he does believe Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen when she says the U.S. could default on its debts as early as June 4th. 
or first. He said that the Treasury Department doesn't play games when it comes to these types of things. So that's why negotiators are working towards this hard deadline that Yellen has put forth. But it really comes at a moment where we have seen these talks up on Capitol Hill really stall out over the course of the past 24 hours. You heard uh, the House Speaker tell his caucus privately that they are nowhere close to a deal, even as he expresses some optimism publicly that they can get there. But the negotiators for Republicans have said that there is a significant gap remaining between what Republicans and the White House want to see in this budget agreement. Chief among those concerns are the issues when it comes to spending levels in this country. The two sides at odds about where exactly spending should head in the coming years. But yesterday we also heard House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say to our colleague Manu Raju that the only concession he sees himself making in this debate is simply raising the debt ceiling. Sources have told us that those comments really rankled people here at the White House after they had felt that talks had been productive on Monday. And it really speaks to some of the frustration we've seen bubbling up here at the White House over the course of the past few days when it comes to trying to reach a bipartisan and compromise. President Biden, when he was in Japan, stressed that in order for something to be bipartisan, Republicans are also going to have to move. Uh, we've heard people like Hakeem Jeffries, the House a minority, minority leader, who said that, the, that Democrats in the White House have put forward a compromise when it comes to spending levels. So there is some frustration when they hear uh, McCarthy say something like that, that the only compromise he's willing to make is just simply on raising the debt ceiling. But these talks are really entering into a very precarious stage as you are facing that quickly dwindling down uh, time clock and also just the fact that it takes time to move legislation, corral members together to support something up on Capitol Hill. So all eyes will be on the coming days and the coming hours. We're still waiting to hear whether White House negotiators and Capitol Hill negotiators will reconvene today to try to get these talks moving once again after there really appeared to be a stalemate yesterday. Mm, we shall see. Arlette, great to have you with us. Thank you. Arlette signs there. Now to the Russian region of Belgorod, where at least nine people were hospitalized overnight drone attacks, according to the governor of the border region. This follows a surprise attack there on Tuesday, claimed by an anti-Putin Russian group based in Ukraine. They say their goal is to, quote, the complete liberation of Russia. Fred Pleitgen joins us now on this. Fred, good to have you with us. And we were talking about this once again yesterday, and I think there's increasing fascination with this mm -hmm. sort of anti-Putin group. It's no surprise with a message like that that the Russians are saying, look, the architect here is the Ukrainians. What more do we know about the attacks overnight? Hi there, Julia. Well, first of all, that's exactly what the Russians are saying. They're pinning this uh, on the Ukrainians. It's something that the Kremlin said yesterday. It's something that the Russian military said yesterday as well. Uh, the Ukrainians, of course, continue to deny that they had anything to do with this. So we spoke to the National Security Advisor yesterday, and he once again said, look, these are anti-Putin Russians. They are doing this inside Russia, even though they are affiliated with the Ukrainian security forces here in Ukraine. When they act inside Russia, they are acting independently. However, we've now heard from a source inside Ukrainian defense intelligence that, in fact, the Ukrainians apparently did have a head up, heads up that this was going to happen from those two anti-Putin uh, Russian groups that then went over there. Uh, however, they do say that operationally they still had nothing to do with that. And you, you know what was going on last night, it certainly is something that definitely scared a lot of people on that side of the border and has also led to some criticism as well of the Russian security apparatus. What the governor of the Belgorod region was saying is that it was not a quiet night as he put it. And that's probably putting it pretty lightly because he says that there were drone attacks 
attacks going on, uh, which he says were coming from the uh, Ukrainian side. Basically, the entire night that munitions were being dropped, he says no one was actually injured overnight. But in total, he says there were, as you put it, those nine people who were hospitalized and three of them actually in ICU. So even after this cross-border raid seems to be over and the Russian uh, defense forces are now saying that they've pushed everybody who crossed the border back into Ukrainian territory, also alleging that they liquidated 70 of the attackers, as they put it, it certainly seems as though there is still an ongoing security situation in that area, even though right now the Russians are saying that the counterterrorism operation is over. The Russian military, the, 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 the defense uh, minister, Sergei Shoigu, he came out just a little while ago and he said, that the Russians are calling this a terrorist attack. He says that they will respond harshly. But really, there are a lot of people in Russia, Julia, who are questioning right now from that region, from the Belgorod region, but also higher up who are questioning how something like that could happen in the first place when you have the border with Ukraine, that these groups were able to go in there, stay in there for more than 24 hours without the Russian security forces being able to oust them very quickly, Julia. Yeah, and somehow still slipping through and, and managing to stage these attacks, it seems. Um, Frederick, great to have you, have your context. Thank you. Frederick Plack in there. Now in the Pacific, a powerful typhoon is lashing the island of Guam. With devastating winds, storm surge and heavy rain pummeling the popular tourist destination as we speak. Typhoon Mawa is the strongest storm to hit the U.S. territory in decades. Anna Corrin joins us now on this. Anna, I believe the eye is passed north of Guam now, but the eye wall, which is the strongest part, is currently in place. What more can you tell us about the damage and what people are facing there? Yeah, Julia, the good news is Typhoon Mawa is now moving away from Guam. Landfall didn't happen as was predicted. However, as you say, it passed over the northern tip of the U.S. territory, which is located in the, the Western Pacific Ocean, home to about 150,000 people. The eye wall of that typhoon is hitting Guam. And as you say, this is when the most intense winds and rain hit. Uh, the U.S. National Weather Service Guam reports maximum sustained winds of about 140 miles an hour. That's 225 kilometres an hour, packing an enormous punch. And uh, they said that the Weather Service building was, was being hammered, that the doors and windows were rumbling and vibrating. They could hear you know, things breaking outside. Uh, there was a, a virtual blackout across the island as most of the power grids went out. Only 1,000 of the 52,000 customers had power. Uh, the Guam Memorial Hospital is, is currently operating with, with generators. Mawa, Julia, is no longer classified as super typhoon, but that's not to say that it isn't causing significant damage, but it will be some time before we know the full extent of the, the destruction. Uh, the Weather Service held a press conference a few hours ago reporting that there, there will be more heavy rain and strong winds through to about midnight local time. That's in less than an hour. And then conditions will ease. Uh, there was much talk earlier in the day of the risk of a, a triple threat, uh, torrential rain, destructive winds, a storm surge that could pose you know, a major risk to life and property. And everyone on the island, including the U.S. military, and there's a, there's a huge uh, you know, military presence that is stationed on Guam, have been told to stay indoors to ride this out. The Weather Service, you know, they finished the press conference telling folks that this will no doubt be a scary evening, but this will all be over very soon, Julia. Yeah, thoughts with everyone involved. Anna, great to have you. Thank you. 
Now to the UK, and inflation is back in single digits, but economists are putting the celebrations on hold. Consumer prices rose 8.7% last month year on year. That's down, actually, from over 10% in March. But that drop actually was a disappointment, and food prices didn't get the memo either. They are at a multi-decade high. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, it was the food prices that caught my attention, rising 19.1% in April. Core inflation actually rose. You know, I look at the Bank of England now in the meeting next month. They're going to have to raise rates again, surely. Yeah, this was not a good day to release. It was, certainly wasn't welcome news. Inflation has fallen, but nothing like as much as people expected, given the fall we've seen in energy prices. And you mentioned food. Yeah, up 19.1% versus a year ago. Essentially hadn't really moved from the month before. And the Chancellor made really clear this morning, this is concerning. He actually met with food producers yesterday. There was a big photo up there. And I just want to show you the rises we've had in some really basic food staples here in the UK over the last year. Look at this. Sugar up more than 47%. Eggs up 37%, milk up by almost as much. Why are we still seeing all of this food inflation? Well, the Office of National Statistics is putting it down to, firstly, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the impact that had on grain prices and uh, fertilizer prices in addition to energy costs. Uh, The labor shortages in the UK, that is a result of the pandemic. Also Brexit, of course, and really impacts the farming. And then weather, droughts and cold snaps, but not in the UK. The issue for the UK, it relies hugely on imported food. And actually, the prices for imported food in the UK has risen twice as fast as domestic food. And then you've got to add in the huge lag in terms of, yes, we're seeing commodity prices fall, but of course, all those long-term contracts, particularly with imported food, that lags some distance. So we're not going to see inflation coming down maybe as quickly as we had hoped. And the issue with this, Julia, of course, this sort of inflation with food and energy really hits the poorest hardest. And there is huge pressure for wages to go up so that people can afford to meet their bills. The problem with that, inflation becomes more entrenched. And that was the big warning yesterday from the IMF. And at this stage, they're saying inflation is the absolute number one priority. And I think that means interest rates are going to go up much, much higher than we had expected only a few weeks ago. I think four and a half percent was really the consensus for the peak. It's now looking at over five percent, maybe five and a half. Julia? Yeah. Yeah. And your point about the IMF, I think absolutely um, accurately said. Businesses keep prices elevated because they're not sure about that time lag. Workers then demand higher wages because it's hitting them too. And it remains really sticky. And that's the challenge we're in, not just in the UK. Um, Good to have you with us. Thank you. Anna Stewart there. We're back after this. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. Congress has very little time left to agree on legislation and avoid the first ever U.S. default. Now, whether that happens or not, even just flirting with the prospect has big consequences. It clearly matters for those who rely on things like pensions from the U.S. government, but it also matters for those who invest in U.S.-based assets like U.S. government bonds. Here in the U.S., they're supposed to be the safest assets to own. And that's part of the problem. Now, imagine you provide a product whose value is tied to the U.S. dollar and investors trust that you have exactly the same amount of cash or bonds, for example, to back it up. In very simple terms, that's how a stable coin works. Circle is a financial services company that issues one of the world's largest, known as USD coin. Now, stable coins facilitate trades in cryptocurrencies, but can also be used to lend, borrow, and even to send payments around the world with lower transaction costs. 
Jeremy Lair joins us now. He is the CEO of Circle. Jeremy, great to have you with us. And I was trying to put it in the simplest terms I can, but just explain for my audience again what you do uh, at Circle and how USD coin is being utilized around the world. Absolutely. And, and thanks, thanks for having me on. So USD coin or USDC, as it's generally known, is essentially a way to take dollars that we have in the traditional electronic money banking system and, it, and as we like to say upload them to the internet and sort of convert them into a digital currency form that then can be used to transact directly on the internet um, peer-to-peer or business to business and just as we've all become accustomed to the ability to share information and data or emails or have live video with people anywhere instantly in the world um, USDC as a technology kind of brings the the stability of, of a dollar, the price stability of a dollar, uh, but the internet as a medium of exchange. And it, it works on top of what's called blockchain technology, which is the same technology used by other digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. But we use it to have a fully backed dollar um, and then give it, as I like to say, the superpowers of the internet for moving money around the world. I love how you sort of laughed gently when you talked about the stability of the traditional US dollar there, because that's um, that's been a challenge. But to your point, that backing is really important. And I believe, and you can talk me through it, you made a decision um, just recently in light of all the negotiations in Washington to take some of the money that you had stored in shorter term US treasuries, and I know a chunk of it was in, in cash as well, and take it out take it out of U.S. Treasuries if they were maturing or you were expecting to get your money back um, beyond the end of this month. It's sort of crazy. But just explain the decision there. Yeah. So a, um, a, a dollar, a digital dollar like USDC, um, the reserves for that are held in cash and in what are considered to be the safest dollar instruments in the world, which are short term U.S. government treasury bonds. So three months or less. And that's in in um, in the financial world, what's often described as a cash equivalent instrument. It's something that is as good as cash, um, and um, and it's you know the undergirds these short term U.S. government bonds undergird all of the plumbing of the financial system. In fact, uh, but in a in a product as you described in your introduction, where essentially the 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 promise of the product is that you can always redeem it for a dollar. If one of those instruments, meaning what is you know generally considered to be the safest interest inter, instrument in the world, those short-term government bonds, isn't actually worth a dollar, uh, or 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 actually the the bond itself cannot be repaid for some reason, such as the government defaults, um, that's a real problem. And so what um, w- we have done, and you know this has been communicated uh, you know publicly, is. And we took a decision, we, we started planning for this months ago, uh, which is that we did not want to hold any U.S. government treasury bonds that matured past May 31st. And, um, and so we've, we've sort of evolved the, the, the reserve structure uh, to be uh, holding you know, highly safe, uh, uh, you know, what are called tri-party uh, uh, treasury uh, repos, um, as, as an alternative to holding those U.S. government bonds. But the, the way I like to put it is, um, you know, we have to protect USDC from the actual dollar depegging. Uh, and, and so in a sense, a U.S. government uh, default 
the, the, the pricing on, on the dollar, which is these short-term government instruments, would effectively not be a dollar. Um, and so uh, you know, we're, we're trying to manage through that, that period of time uh, where you know, those, those could not be liquid, at least at, at their face value. Yeah, and you've been through this once before when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and you were caught up in that and you yeah. had that same situation where um, USDC traded below the value of $1, which, I mean, we can talk about, but I know you were, you were certainly perceived, I think, in the industry to have handled that incredibly well. But I think the bigger point here that we should talk about, perhaps, is the idea that you're getting out of what's up until this point bar a few examples, perceived to be the safest asset. Do you actually think it's, it's possible that the, the US government could default on its debt? Or are you just being as absolutely cautious in light of recent events as you possibly can be? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's more the latter. I think we, we want to be really cautious. I think, um, you know, uh, in, in the earlier incident, you know, we had a failure in the fractional reserve banking system that infected us. Uh, and that's been a concern of ours for some time. Um, we, we would like to see a structure where we don't have to hold cash in risk-taking banks. Um, we would ultimately r rather have a structure where we could hold you know, a portion of cash at the Fed, uh, where we could hold things like repos and, um, and, and, then, and then these, these treasury bills. Um, and I think that would be the right structure for the safest digital dollar that you could have that then people all around the world would trust and it would actually make the dollar itself more competitive. Um, but, you know, our view is I, I don't want to take a view on whether the, the government will default or what's going to happen with all this. And it's just, I think, um, prudent risk management uh, for, for us at this stage. Yeah, but I think the point there was important that you're sort of making choices where you store more money, perhaps in the traditional banking sector, and you've sort of got your head in your hands over that too. Um, do you think this is a huge opportunity more broadly for for the crypto space? Because you've long talked about the prospect of de-dollarization. I think Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank was talking about um, not taking mm -hmm. your reserve status of the US dollar. She was talking about, I think, the euro as well for granted given the sort of geopolitical backdrop that we're, we're in at this moment too. Do you think what we're seeing even today, and um, we have to be realistic about this, sort of promotes that de-dollarization and people looking at the situation and going, you know what, we need alternatives. Yeah, I mean, th there, there are a lot of big geopolitical, geoeconomic and, and macro themes here. And we think about this a lot. And the, the, the sort of trend towards de-dollarization is real. Um, and it comes up every 10 years or so, and, and people talk about it, but the, the numbers tell the story. It's gradual. Central banks are holding more of their reserves in alternatives like gold. But really importantly, um, geoeconomic blocks are building alternative payment systems. And really, the new frontier for currency competition is the Internet. And the question that we sort of ask uh, is, you know, if if techno the technological capabilities of the currency are going to be the next kind of battleground, and that battleground is going to be how those currencies are expressed on the internet, you know, there's a huge opportunity here for the United States to lead to make do digital dollar, uh, digital currencies well regulated, provide them with the very safest foundation possible. Uh, but but enable the private sector and kind of technology innovation to to deliver that. Uh, around the world, it, it's a huge opportunity, and it needs to happen because, um, you know, ultimately, um, 
you know, businesses, individuals, households all around the world are going to be deciding over the internet what economic system they want to participate in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the United States has an opportunity here to, to lead and compete uh, in this space, uh, certainly uh, in the face of the, these, these broader trends. Yeah, and lawmakers have a responsibility not to scare people to death as well. Um, you've said a number of times um, recently in light of this as well that digital dollars are the solution. It's similar to what um, China's done. Um, what would be the unique value then in USDC in, in the coin that you issue if the United States digitizes dollars anyway? Well, our view is that, you know, the, the, the Western system and, and the U.S.-led system, we can learn a lot from, from the Internet itself, which is that clear regulation uh, and, and creating a, a, a fair, competitive, open market uh, allowed Internet um, software technology, Internet firms, technology firms to build the best technology in the world and really made the United States the center of technological innovation for for so much of the past um, decades of of technical innovation on the internet. As we move into a world of um, technical innovation in the the sort of power of, of, of currency itself, that same playbook can be used. And so our view is that the, the immediate opportunity is pass clear legislation that defines what these payment, uh, what are called stable coins, these payment stable coins are, uh, enable a, a free and fair and open competitive market for banks and non-banks to issue these and, uh, and provide you know, uh, the, the, the kind of supervision to make sure that everyone in the world knows that these digital currency instruments that are issued um, through the private sector are as safe as possible and unleash that competition. And I think if you have that, the private sector is going to be innovating on technology at an extraordinary pace. And, and that's, that's the advantage that the United States has, is not having a centralized government that is trying to build and operate something with total control and total surveillance, which is, as I like to say, don't try to out-China China. China. Embrace free market capitalism, embrace open competitive uh, technology innovation, embrace the open internet, but build a, a clear rule book around it. And so that's how we see digital dollars achieving scale in the next five years. Uh, and, and that's very much what's in front of Congress right now with this stablecoin bill that's working its way through the House. Yeah. And hopefully um, the sort of mess that they're making of the debt ceiling negotiations gives them extra impetus to, uh, to recognize the necessity of it in some way. Um, Jeremy, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that, Jeremy Allaire, the CEO. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. OK, coming up after the break. D-Day for DeSantis. The Florida governor is expected to announce his presidential run and he's out trumping Trump, according to some, by turning to social media. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and a Wednesday wake-up call on Wall Street. U.S. stocks lower as investors worry about the lack of movement in the debt ceiling negotiations with just over a week according to the Treasury, to go before the so-called X date. That's the date that the United States could run out of money to pay its bills without a debt ceiling increase. No word yet, as we were hearing earlier on the show, on whether both sides in the talks will be meeting today. And in the meantime, DeSantis decides Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to announce he's running for the U.S. president position later today for a while now. He's been considered Donald Trump's most formidable challenger, 
former president has made an effort to rally his base against DeSantis and has mocked him on social media. DeSantis, for his part, is expected to announce his run in a live discussion with Elon Musk on Twitter. Yes, yeah, so, I um, will be interviewing um, Ron DeSantis and he has quite an announcement to make. Um, and will be, be the first time that something like this is happening on social media and with uh, real-time questions and answers, uh, not, not scripted. And Donia Sullivan joins us now. Donny, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm just thinking that 2020, 2024 has the uh, potential to make 2020 look <laughs> ordinary. My head yeah. just exploded. Um, what do you make of this? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's obviously a, a different approach in terms of DeSantis here, uh, obviously intentionally bypassing the so-called, quote unquote, mainstream media, even Fox News, and going uh, directly first uh, to Twitter uh, to speak with Elon Musk in this audio chat this evening on Twitter spaces. Uh, look, Musk has been trying to, you know, uh, market Twitter to kind of right-wing conservatives in the U.S. Uh, Musk claims that Twitter is a kind of bastion of free speech, although we've seen him suspend journalists and, you know, uh, uh, do as Turkish authorities tell him and, and censor his platform there. Um, but, you know, ver very much trying to, to, to serve uh, the DeSantis, I guess, audience. We know DeSantis uh, likes to engage in all this kind of culture war type uh, stuff as well. But also quite notable, uh, you know, um, Musk is really, I guess, trying to make Twitter a platform where they host and create their own content like tonight. Uh, but also we know that Tucker Carlson, recently fired from Fox News, is going to be launching his show on the platform as well. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Nikki Haley, who's also a Republican presidential candidate, has launched a video suggesting that um, Ron DeSantis is an echo of President Trump and that voters deserve a choice, which I think is quite fascinating to your point about the uh, repudiation of mainstream media. Now, never mind that, because you've also been getting up to um, exciting things, Doni, <laughs> as you always do. And, and this is tied to artificial intelligence, but the possibility perhaps of AI being able to work out what we're thinking without That's right. Anything. Yeah. Talking about things getting a bit crazy over the next few years, uh, we've heard so much about artificial intelligence over uh, these last few months. And now the very same technology that's behind ChatGBT might be able to read your mind. Have a look. You're reading people's minds. So we don't like to use the term mind reading. These neuroscientists at the University of Texas in Austin say they've made a major breakthrough. They've figured out how to translate brain activity into words using artificial intelligence. These are different images. Earlier this month, they published a paper explaining how they had researched volunteers listen to audio clips while having their brains scanned by an fMRI machine. Over time, AI algorithms, the very same tech that's behind ChatGPT, were able to figure out what the volunteers were listening to just by watching their brains. It is just crazy. You can watch how blood flows through the brain mm -hmm. and using AI and GBT and everything else translated into words. Yeah, it's... Wild that this works when you put it that way. Thumbs up, Donnie. To test it all out, Professor Alexander Hoot and I had our brain scanned while listening to parts of the Wizard of Oz audiobook. Chinip, I only had a brain. Big brain. Yeah. Like obnoxiously big. All right, Danny, we have a picture of your brain. So I have a brain. Yeah, it looks good. I was scanned first, followed by Professor Hoot, capturing images of the changes in our brain's blood flow as we listened to the words from the audiobook and showing how our brains interpreted those words. 
When she had finished her meal and was about to go back to the road of yellow brick, she was startled to hear a deep groan nearby. You can see that they're getting recordings every two seconds. While he's listening to a story, we will feed this data through our decoder and try to predict the story that he's currently listening to. The next morning, the results were in. Okay, so it's been 24 hours since we got our brain scanned. You can confirm I have a brain. Absolutely. Brilliant. So we were able to decode some stuff from my brain, not so much from yours. So uh, this is one from my brain. This is from The Wizard of Oz. So on the left side is the actual words that uh, I heard. When she had finished her meal and was about to go back to the road of yellow brick, she was startled to hear a deep groan nearby. And the decoded version of this is on the right. It's, I was about to head back to school and I hear this strange voice calling out to me. So it gets some things right. So this like was about to go back, was about to head back. It completely misses some things, like mm -hmm. the road of yellow brick versus school. But then it gets this, uh, this nice kind of example. So she hears something, and then instead of a deep groan nearby, it said a strange voice calling out to me. It means sure. something related, even if it's not exactly the right words. Still pretty incredible to think that was about to head back as something that just by scanning your brain. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the things that's really surprising to us about this. It can get things like that. It can get these entire phrases of exact words. Mm. Okay, so here's this same segment for you. Now, so we expected mine not to be Grace. Because we haven't trained the model on you. The whole day I'd be fine, but she wanted me to make it to her place. First, I got a little excited about it. <laughs> the reason it wasn't able to decode my brain was because the technology currently needs people to sit in the fMRI machine for more than 16 hours so the AI models can train on specific people's brains. Are we going to live in a world where, you know, I can walk by somebody on the street and they'll be able to hold something up to my head and they'll know what I'm thinking? Currently, we're very far from that. That might also never be possible. We can't completely rule it out, but as far as we know, that certainly won't be possible in the next few decades. The real potential application of this is actually helping people who are unable to speak without them needing to get neurosurgery. Now we have this like snapshot of the brain. And Jerry Tang explained how they used OpenAI's GPT large language model to help decode the brain. The GPT model is made up of millions of pages of text from the internet that the AI trains on and learns how sentences are constructed and how people talk and think. GPT basically made our predictions a lot better. But it doesn't just work listening to audio. Professor Hu showed us what happened when he watched a movie with no sound while his brain was scanned. Watch as the technology is able to decode what his eyes are seeing. She then took my hand and held it to her lips. She kissed it. I smiled. And oh my she God. pulled me in for a hug. I got her back for about hours. I had to stop the bleeding and gave her my shirt to put over it. It's pretty good. I don't know, it's, it's a pretty That's good description of what was happening here. Wow. Should we be scared by the work people like you are doing? We think it's really important to continually evaluate um, the implications of brain decoding and also to start thinking about enacting policies that protect mental privacy and regulate what brain data can be used for. Wow. <laughs> is all I can say. And that's the second time I've seen that. You know, when we were talking about it before the show and my producer Bob said to me, I know where this is going. When I come home and my wife says, um, how many beers did you have? And he says two. And the AI bot in the house goes seven. Like, I know yes. what it was. He's going to kill me for saying that. Um, I don't know, Donny. Just 16 hours. Imagine if they had you for a month. 
I know, right? It's uh, look. I mean, it is right now, and even the researchers there will say this is works in very controlled, specific uh, circumstances and environments. But you know, they can't rule out that one day. Uh, something along the lines of of, of what Bob is describing uh, about it, the number of beers he's drinking uh, uh, could happen as well. But look, I mean, I, I do think you know there is a real uh, tangible use for this. It's obviously people who can who cannot communicate, who cannot speak, have locked in syndrome. Uh, this could really change our lives because it could give them a way to communicate uh, without having to have uh, a brain surgery or, or implants. Yeah, incredible for people that can't speak to be able yeah. to communicate like communicate like this. The medical benefits are clear. Um, I'm also in big trouble with Bob, by the way. Um, <laughs> next question: Were you the obnoxiously big-brained person, or that was that the professor? Oh, that was that was my brain. That was, yeah, that was my. I, I have a that. very I have I have a very big head. I don't know about the brain part of it, though. <laughs> I was going to say we'll go with the brain. Please, yes. not obnoxious. Please, um, awesome work. Donny, thank Thanks, you so Julia. much. Fascinating to see Donny O'Sullivan there. All right. And finally, the New York Yankees baseball team may have found itself a brand new mascot. At Tuesday night's home game in the Bronx, this super excited squirrel made a mad dash across the Yankees outfield wall. Wowzers. The fans responded as if they'd never seen a squirrel before. We've not seen one do that. Maybe they'd never been to Central Park. We've seen one or two, and perhaps the squirrel was the lucky charm for the team. The Yankees went on to win the game. We hope the squirrel made it out okay too. There were some astonished faces there. That's it for the show. Marketplace Europe's up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.